This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Elizabeth Tallerman, CEO and founder of the Nucleus Group. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm so glad we were able to get this conversation booked. This is one that I've really been looking forward to because unlike many of the people that I interview, we had an opportunity to meet prior to and have almost like a pre-interview conversation, which only got me more excited for the actual conversation. So I'm going to build off a little bit of what we talked about in like a coffee shop environment. And now we're going to be able to expand on that and probably go in all kind of new and interesting ways. So the perfect place for us to start is for you to just give just a little bit of background about your career and what led you to founding the Nucleus Group. So I grew up more or less in marketing, starting with college and sort of taking a kind of straight line. I came out of college and got to do something I really love, which is be a storyteller with numbers. Uh, I worked in an analytics department trying to figure out how data could inform better conversations. Um, And my job was to build creative briefs. So I did that for a number of years in different firms and organizations. And then I got tapped on the shoulder by the Harvard Business School to come there and be their head of marketing for a while. And it was a really interesting period because there was a recession. And for the first time in Harvard's history, their executive education programs weren't full. They weren't oversubscribed. So I went back to my roots and I looked at analytics and looked at how you have conversations with people and started a direct marketing practice there. I think people thought I was a little bit crazy. What do you mean you have to market the Harvard Business School? But, you know, when someone's about to leave their home and leave their company for three months to go back into to sort of transition out of being an expert mind to being a learning mind again, they need a little prompting. They need a little more information. So I did that for a while and then got tapped on the shoulder by Ogilvy and Mather in New York. And they said, you know something about this internet thing. And I guess I did because at Harvard, the precursor to the internet was Gopher. And I had to put all our programs up on Gopher. So I knew, you know, about my knowledge was about an inch deep and an inch wide, but that somehow made me an expert back in 1996. And I had the good fortune to move to New York, which is the place I now call home and have for more than 23 years and work with IBM. And there were no budgets in the world like that. And we got to do a lot of crazy experimental things. And, you know, I got to help build one of the first websites for the Olympic Games. And 
really just had a vertical learning curve, but knew in my heart of hearts that I was kind of allergic to employment. I was more likely to be employed by ideas than by organizations. And the notion of hierarchy just didn't make sense to me. So I established my first collaborative called Agile Industries. And we really focused on what a brand's role in this new digital world and digital economy was all about. And a few years later, I realized it was the consulting side of that, the strategic consulting side. I like to do far more than the you know execution. I didn't need to build more websites or more web banners. I really wanted to dive into this thing called branding and strategy. So that was 2002. And it started out being called Tellerman Partners. And it wound its way around a few different engagements with lots of different kinds of partners and became Nucleus around 2008. And here we are today. Now it's the Nucleus Group, which is two companies, actually, a nonprofit called Nucleus Impact and a company dedicated to for-profit business called Nucleus Strategy. And that's a perfect place to segue because I did actually want to discuss why within the Nucleus Group, you have those two differentiating arms, because that's actually quite unique in the sense that many larger organizations will, of course, do, you know, pro bono type of work, spec type work, work that they consider to be for social impact or social good. But it seems like you have institutionalized that as a broader part of your focus with having these two arms. So kind of walk me through a little bit of what the thought process was to creating the group to be structured the way in which it is. Yeah, I started to understand the potential for this from being an advisor to a young organization almost 10 years ago called Populist. And two friends, young friends that I was advising at the time, just in their careers, decided they couldn't just dedicate themselves to earning money and being on that hamster wheel of sort of climbing the corporate ladder, that if they were going to do that, they also needed to add a purpose-driven component. And they grabbed a few friends and took some time off and used their marketing skills to go solve problems in the developing world. They were lucky enough that their employers said, don't leave us, stay, and we'll give you a little time to do what you got to do. And In advising them, what I started to realize is that law firms institutionalize this idea of pro bono. In order to become a partner, young associates had to do a certain number of pro bono hours. I was on the board of a a nonprofit called In Motion that provided legal services to women who needed orders of protection or needed help in family court. And the big white shoe law firms in New York would send their associates to get litigation experience, albeit in family court, arguing in front of a judge or a jury was a really good way to bone up their skills without putting client work at risk. So putting those two things together, I dreamt about taking that model and bringing it to communication and branding and design and trying to institutionalize a world in which people seeking meaningful careers 
could take some of their time and put that towards things they were passionate about, picking up skills from that world, bringing them back to the commercial world, and bringing the rigor of the commercial world and commercial discipline to work in the nonprofit sector. So the opportunity arose about two and a half years ago to say it's time to put these two things together. And while the IRS frowns on the commingling of a for-profit and a non-profit, we try to keep our accounting as clean as possible, but our for-profit practice helps us fund work in nuclear non-proliferation and in, with UNICEF in the developing world to remove barriers and create demand for health services. And it means that I can attract some of the best and brightest and most dedicated people who want to round out their experience with commercial practice, but who also couldn't dream of just doing that work for profit. I love our friends at the IRS. They are very serious people, but Ironically, I've actually found them to be extremely helpful. I don't know if anyone's ever had to call with or deal with the IRS, but as much as they have this very onerous perspective, they're actually quite kind when one has to speak when one has to speak to them for things. So I definitely appreciate any mention of how one balances their IRS responsibilities. But it's interesting because in that story you get a little bit more background as to the things that are really important to you as a practitioner, but then things that you've seen in your business as it's grown and expanded. And when I asked the original question and said like, oh, how'd you get here? You said, oh, it's been very straightforward. But then as you're explaining it, I'm like, it's anything but straightforward, you know? But that's, I mean that in the best possible way that there is connective tissue through these different experiences, but they actually, when at least I'm listening to them, they actually seem quite different from one another, right? The analytics piece at the beginning, being at an institution like Harvard, which of course, everyone knows the name, but you joined in a transitional period. Their executive education is very different from the undergrad, which is different from the business school, which is different from the public policy school, starting your own thing. So yeah, there's a through line in there, but those experiences are actually very different from one another. What do you think gave you the ability to be successful in each of those particular places? Yeah, such a good question. I've been wondering about that a lot myself as I look at the practice that we have today. And a lot of our work looks at human behavior, at biases that we hold, at motivations, rewards, recognition. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And I think what's become clearer to me over the years is that the rewards I seek are intrinsic and not extrinsic. I was lucky enough at a very early age to have a title of marketing director at the Harvard Business School or professor at Columbia or even a beautiful corner office at Ogilvy & Mather and being a senior partner. And those experiences, while really rich, were really frustrating. I was constantly told what I wasn't allowed to do or what, you know, wasn't in my purview rather than being able to find patterns and see issues or problems or barriers and break those down. So 
I sought out a path that doesn't have a lot of extrinsic reward. I don't have a corner office. I have a corner of my apartment. And I don't always have a big salary, depending on the balance of work we have. What matters to me is that I can support myself and build capacity in others, whether those others are my clients or the people that work with me or my students. It's just a joyful life when you can share what you know with other people and watch them take off with it in ways you didn't even imagine possible. In one of my notes down here, because this is a perfect kind of segue into that, because as you're describing those sort of values, what motivates you, it reminded me of our conversation. And I, and I wrote this the, when we laughed, that you describe yourself as a teacher and as a tool builder. And those are not often the ways in which you hear people in our space, meaning those who are engaged in marketing and culture and, and strategy, how whichever you know, definition you want to put on it, that is not typically how you hear people describe themselves. So tell me a little bit more about that teacher slash tool builder perspective. So I knew from the time I was probably six years old, I wanted to be a teacher. And I went to my mom and I said, mom, I'm going to be a teacher. And she said, Elizabeth, you're not going to be able to support yourself if you're a teacher. They don't make much money. And I said, huh, I wonder what I should do. She said, you got to go into business. My parents weren't business people. They were photographers. So I don't know where that came from. But I took her advice and I went into business and I never, ever lost the desire to be a teacher. And about, I guess it's almost 15 years ago, a friend of mine, a colleague that I met while I was working with Martha Stewart, and he was working at 1-800-Flowers said, would you come in and give a guest lecture to my class at Columbia? And I did. And he said, would you come back and do that again for another class? And he had the director of that program come who said, oh my God, you're a natural. You've got to teach in our program. Well, I took the challenge and I took my first semester course and I built a syllabus and I was terrible. I lectured <laughs> off of PowerPoints and took up all the air in the room and left no room for discussion or debate or learning myself. And so it took a while to learn that teaching is actually facilitation, the facilitation of Socratic debate and discovery. And as I learned that, the, that, the privilege of wearing that title started to feel natural. And the tool builder part comes from Growing up in the advertising business and sort of hitting mid-career and all these British guys started to arrive on the scene and they were calling themselves strategic planners and they had all these funky pyramids and I don't know, pillars and things. And I was looking around going, huh, what's going on here? And I started collecting all their charts and looking at them. And I have this funny book of them and I realized they were smart because they were building shortcuts. I was inventing things new every single time, but they were building these tools. And so I started to look at what I call the physics of things and looked at how you break 
complexity down into simplicity and what you do to navigate that and then how you show others how to do that. Because it's kind of like, wow, I just found this cool secret or this cool shortcut. Everybody should take it. And so calling myself a teacher and tool builder just came from all of that. Is these conversations, I love when other pieces of them start to gel together. So you, you mentioned a few things in there. Complexity is something that comes up a lot in the folks that I talk to. I think in some sense, we're all wrestling with how to make sense of the world around us, right? There's all of these different stimulus that's coming at us all the time. And things can get confusing. Things can be complex. But yet we have these tools that folks are building. And I wonder, there's a lot of value in in many of them. You've collected a bunch and developed some of your own. And now I think you see kind of like tools for tool sake. Like when you mention the pyramids and the verticals and all that kind of stuff, like it all starts to look the same. And so previous conversation I had was talking about like kind of postmodernism. So I'm kind of curious about like, are we in this place where the strategy world is now, we know what it's supposed to look like. So everything starts to look the same. If that makes, <laughs> if I'm like getting to that, like, have you, do you have a thought about that or? <laughs> yeah, I have lots of thoughts about that and some snarky comments too. Snarky I guess comments <laughs> are more than appreciated and welcome. The snarky comment is, if a presentation opens with a Venn diagram, I know I can just kind of shut off my brain or start swiping through Instagram and take a vacation. You know, whether things look the same or different is immaterial, but there's not one tool in the world. And the world is complex. In fact, it is literally a complex adaptive system. There are things that we can't control that we must adapt to. And the most important lesson of complex adaptive systems is that the agents or actors, the individuals within them, if they optimize themselves, will collapse the system. So if you think about beehives or ant colonies, you know, there are these big, robust ants that go out and carry back the food and they carry a hundred times their weight or whatever it is. Now, those big ants probably could eat a lot more and really optimize their strength. But if they do that, the ants that are back home building that beautiful, you know, house for all the other ants won't have enough food. And if the big ant doesn't have a house to sleep in, it's going to get eaten by a bird. So, you know, we all live within a complex adaptive system. The theory of that is pretty simple, right? Once you understand that. So, I don't like celebrating complexity. I like understanding it and managing my way through it. And I do that not by building tools because they look good or they're fancy or somebody else does or doesn't have them. I don't copyright anything I do. I'm building, hopefully what I'm building is actually a kind of excavation, an excavation to the simplest possible elements to create universal understanding. And that universal understanding hopefully gets us to shared ambitions or the achievement of shared ambitions. So, you know, my vernacular, my simplest tool, people ask me all the time, so what is this branding thing? Or I get lots of skepticism or snarky remarks about, what do you mean branding? 
And my answer to that is, you know, as simple as it's trying to figure out the reasons why people do or don't connect with an idea. And then the process of using persuasion to help people change or augment or amplify a behavior. So, you know, that's just a demonstration of how do we get rid of the fluff and the language and the crazy pyramids and the complexity so that everybody can be on an equal platform of understanding. And the branding concept, this, you know, I think when people hear words like persuasion and behavior, you know, the alarm bells might be too strong a word, but, you know, the eyebrow might raise. I think most, the average person probably doesn't think they're very persuadable, right? So this, you know, there, I think everyone likes to think that they're in their own space, having arrived at everything independently. And, you know, I'm painting with broad brush here, but most people just feel like, oh, commercials don't work, or I don't care about ads, or, you know, they just blow it all off. But yet, this is a thriving ecosystem that is focused on really ideas and change, right? Behavior change, getting person X to do purchase item A or push lever B or and so on and so forth. Like, how do those two situations exist in the same space? You know, people feel they're not persuadable and then others in these spaces are in the business of persuasion. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think one of the things that sometimes happens is people conflate persuasion and coercion. Nobody wants to be coerced. Nobody wants to sort of be dragged along and do something that they may not have ever had the intention of doing. I think about persuasion as one of two things, as a nudge in a direction that somebody already wants to go, or as a way to remove a barrier. What I mean by that is, if we understand why somebody does or doesn't connect to an idea, let's say immunization, making sure that their child has the immunizations they need, it's pretty clear that parents share the same ambition that a healthcare provider might in ensuring the durability and longevity and sustainability of their child's happy life. Persuasion may be as simple as letting somebody know where a clinic is and when the immunization will be available. Persuasion may also be having an influencer in a community come back into their tribe or village and let people know the line was shorter, that some barrier that was creating long lines was removed. So it's time for parents to take advantage of that. I think. We don't do a good job of being thoughtful about persuasion. My definition of persuasion is aligning with someone's values, understanding their ambitions, and making sure that the brand that I'm working with, that their ambitions align with the people they serve. You don't want to persuade someone who doesn't want you. You want to persuade someone who wants you and hasn't had an opportunity have a piece of whatever that is. And that brand, as I said, may be a safer world and ridding the world of the threat we face from nuclear weapons, or that brand might be, you know, a new toothpaste. Those are two very different brands. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Nuclear deterrent or toothpaste. 
<laughs> or fresh breath. Yeah, <laughs> which which I think everyone's on the side of both of those things, right? Like very few people are pro nuclear war. Very few people are like pro non fresh breath, right? <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> we can align ambitions here. Exactly, and I think the just to use the vaccination example is you're kind of walking through that, and that's one of those examples, I think, of a current situation and not just because of our current news, but just generally there's a lot of push and pull on the reality of vaccinations. Right. And so one would wonder, like, why that is. And so I'm curious as to are there overarching in, in your mind, and, and maybe you haven't studied this, so it doesn't have to be particular to vaccinations, but in the sense that Do you think there's maybe societal archetypes or values that are shifting that causes there to be push and pull in areas like that? Like, are these issues, is the barrier or trust issue where you have two groups of parents, both care about their kids. So that's the common thing. One group cares and it's manifested in one way and another group would argue they're manifesting it in another. So when you said that, it made me think to myself, like, well, what? What's the bigger thing that's going on that might be causing a conflict when the core issue is concern for a child, right? right? So again, maybe there's, we don't need to drill down on that conversation. I'm just curious about that sort of meta-narrative relative to a more internal battle that's actually quite, it's quite conflicting, right? Like these are two groups that go at it, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And depending on where you are in the world, it may be two or five groups. It's, it is incredibly complex. And clearly, the ambition in terms of immunization or vaccination is to ensure a healthy ecosystem and to ensure the health and happy long life of children. The most important thing we can do in the world, in my view, of branding is to be human-centered in our exploration of the barriers and accelerators of behavior. So it's not our job to determine whether somebody's right or wrong in their viewpoint. It's our job to understand what their viewpoint is and what may be standing between them and achieving the ambition of having a healthy, happy child. That could be religious hesitancy. That could be misinformation. That could be the geographic location of a clinic. That could be gender violence or gender repression, where one gender is in control and the other gender isn't, meaning a man and a woman have different roles to play and see the world differently. I don't have direct experience with curing this issue from a misinformation perspective, and that Mm. seems to dominate the conversation domestically. But I can tell you that when we're dealing with this in the developing world, our job is never to try to figure this out. We're capacity builders. Mm -hmm. Our job is to help people in the local community from the Ministry of Health to religious leaders to frontline health workers, understand how to observe and ask questions, understand the barriers between them and the people who live in their village or their world or their country, and to 
use observation and real evidence, not their own biases, in order to solve the problem. I would like to think that I am somehow all-knowing or all-powerful and I could go in and solve people's problems. But I'm actually kind of allergic to that line of thought, which makes me allergic to the practice of consulting. To me, consulting is like selling crack or heroin. You walk in and you say, I can solve your problem and you do it. Good for you. And then the next time your client has a problem, they've got to call you. That just seems immoral to me. I would rather be a teacher and a tool builder. I'd rather expand somebody's capacity to understand problems, to find them and solve them. And no, there'll always be plenty of work for me to do that. But in building other people's capacity, you're building towards a more just world. Whether we're dealing in the commercial or capitalistic realm or we're dealing in the social innovation realm. I like the point you make regarding the consultant piece, because it seems like the goal there to kind of keep the drug analogy going is to keep the fix going, right? Like your business model is predicated upon there being a need for another hit as compared to kind of weaning someone away from you where they can just go on and prosper. Is some of that the model And is some of that the way in which we've become so specialized in a particular thing, meaning that some organizations, I'm sure there's many organizations that you've given them the tools, but it's it's almost like, you know, if you give me the tool, but I don't use it or I don't know how to use it that well, (laughs) then it's then it becomes not as effective as maybe I'm just saying like, uh, can you kind of come back and use the tool for me? Because I don't want to think about this, (laughs) you know, like, so is it a little bit of both of those things? Or where does one start and the other one pick up? So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong in delegating and being specialized and saying, I want help from somebody to do what they're really good at. That's great. I think that's a fine position to be in. But if someone has the capacity and desire to be a better problem solver and you withhold that and say, I'll solve your problem, but I've got some magical special skill that you could never possibly learn. And I kind of felt like that when I was working in the advertising business. Ooh, we're creative and you're not. So we have the answers. That just doesn't ring true to me. That I think everybody has the capacity to be creative. And some of us are privileged to learn about the process and method that opens up creative thinking. I imagine that the world would be a better place and that organizations would be better places if people had that capacity, if people understood how to tap into their own creativity. I'm thrilled to be called to come in as a facilitator of that, to be a catalyst of that. But it doesn't thrill me to come in and say, I can be as expert as you are about your business and come up with the way to persuade or coerce others to love you. That's just a hamster wheel. And as we've seen, and as the old cliche goes, you know, advertising works 50% of the time, but nobody knows which 50% it's going to be. And that just sounds like a bad business model to me. Well, it's it's almost like when I hear things like that, it reminds me of when I first got into finance and you had the school of thought, which still exists, that, you know, you can pick stocks and analyze them and value them based on 
whether it's a quantitative, a technical analysis or fundamental analysis. That's kind of our qual quant in in finance argument. And then there were those who were like, I just throw a dart. You know, back in the day when we had stock listings in newspapers, it's like just throw a dart and you're just as likely to be (laughs) to be successful. You know, I guess that conversation still rages, right? Like what works, what doesn't work? Did it work because of the thing or was it, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I gave up trying to be that predictor and I, you know, in working with lots of different kinds of clients and especially working with nuclear physicists and diplomacy experts, I could work the rest of my life and I will never be as expert as they are at their game. What they may not have had time to do along the way is understand the fundamentals of connection and persuasion and behavior change, of getting underneath, not how to talk about what we want, but how to understand what other people want and take what we know and bring those things together. So it's actually enormously gratifying and a whole lot of fun to get to work in a lot of different places and say, hey, I'm not the expert at that, but I think I can understand why you're not connecting with all the people you want to connect with. And we can prototype some new ways to do that together. Do you think that approach that you're using is, to me, it's thoughtful. Some would use words like it's humble and there's kind of like a humility in there, especially when there is such an urgency, I think, for people to brand themselves as experts, all knowing, all seeing, you know, very much in the way we started the conversation about the, you know, British guys with accents coming over. Like there's a certain sort of like, I don't know, that in and of itself is a brand, right? We've all been in that conversation, right? We've seen that person. And even me saying that people listening, they've seen that person. They know exactly what we're both talking about. There's a certain sort of like assumed expertise and your way of thinking is very different from that. Do you think that that is a function of your experiences having gone through these different things? Do you think it's a function of being a woman in a business dominated by many men? So is it kind of a values perspective? Like I'm throwing a lot of things out there, but I'm curious as to where you think that comes from, particularly when the opposite is usually what's rewarded. Loudest is rewarded when usually it's not often right. Um, So I threw a lot at you, but I'm curious about breaking that down in pieces or what your thoughts are. Yeah, the short answer may be a default. And that is, if I'm allowed to say this, I suck at being the loudest. I don't toot my own horn all that well. And I'm completely immersed and enamored and obsessed with seeking out ambiguity and trying to find order. And I also am not in love with being the expert. I'm in love. An expert mind has certain limitations and confinements. And I have a learning mind. I am 
excited to sit around a table and regardless of somebody's age or where they come from or what they do, hear how they approach the same topic, the same situation, and try to figure out why they're thinking or where they are coming from might be different than mine. And then it just gives me the beginning of what I can help myself from doing, which is finding patterns and creating order and then figuring out within that, is there a tool here? Is there a way to shake something down to a place where a whole bunch of people in a room are going to go, holy cow, now I know where I'm going. Now I see. So maybe it just comes back to the intrinsic reward of feeling like I'm good at something and knowing that I was never going to be good at advertising myself. I was just going to be really good at doing the work. And I love doing the work. And I don't like the confinement of having to do it the same way twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's This is perfect because... One of my questions was to talk about this idea of complexity and constraints. But in that, in your answer, you mentioned the limitations of being an expert. I'm curious, those sound very different to me, even though those words can be somewhat used interchangeably, right? Like the constraints is one way of kind of framing a situation. And then the limitations, it sounded like were something different, do you see those as being differentiated or, or did I jump on something that's not there? Or what do you what do you think about that? So, you know, if I'm a branding expert, why would somebody in the nuclear nonproliferation world call me? The word branding is typically limited to the commercial world. My definition of trying to figure out why people do and don't connect to ideas, which I think is branding, without saying I'm a branding expert, but helping people understand that I'm interested in how to support behavior, augmentation, change, amplification, stopping. And I use a human-centered or evidence-based methodology to get at that. I'll look at big data and I'll go into the field and hang out with people to observe and then use all of that to figure out what happens in the middle there. How do we get to values and ambition alignment? My definition of persuasion. If I'm an expert, I have to use a confined kind of language, the language of my field. And I find the language of branding or advertising or communications to be confining or limiting of my ability to have a bigger impact in the world in the same way that I find the language used by my colleagues in the nuclear threat space to being limiting in so much as so many of my friends that exist outside that space feel they have no agency or don't belong there. Now, let's look at a different field, a different existential risk, climate change or social justice. Most of us feel like we have language and capacity to do something in those fields. So what happens when we are self-limiting in our capacity? I think it's when we put up these sort of guardrails or this create a lose track in which we operate. To me, that's what expert means. Do I have expertise? Of course I do. I have 35 years of working predominantly within a field 
that has concerned itself with how and why people behave in certain ways and how to get them to behave in other ways. I think that by not conforming to the constrictions of the field and the language of that field, I've given myself opportunities to do work that's thrilling and to do work that's much farther afield than selling phone service, financial services, or sugar water. Very, very critical. I love whenever we can kind of trash sugar water, that's very important. Um, I want to get us out on, obviously we have the two segments to get to, but there's a question I wanted to make sure I got to, which was around pattern making or pattern discernment and how we use, oftentimes when I see people talk about or read about pattern making, it seems like we're using, and no matter how it's described, we're using often the same examples, which makes me think to myself as I read it, I'm like, huh, these just kind of seem like the same patterns, but put in like a different, in a different frame, right? So we kind of trace history the same way, or we use the same examples, or we kind of talk about the same stuff. In order to kind of break out of that and bring in new patterns, do you see where diversity becomes something that is kind of needed in order to kind of shake that world up in the sense that maybe we need more examples. <laughs> maybe we need more patterns added to the patterns that we're already looking at. And it just kind of occurred to me as one of my last questions was kind of toward the bottom of my long sheet here. But I'm just always, I'm really pushing on pattern and alignments. Because even when I read history books, they're like, I'm like, this is the same analogies, right? The Medici's, you know, <laughs> like, I get it. All right. So this may be a bit more existential or question, but. Well, go. well there's no, there's no getting around shortcuts. And there's some things, there are some metaphors that bring light to confusion, right? Or that help us see something repeating. But when I think about pattern finding and my insatiable desire to immerse myself in the ambiguous. I don't rely only on the common patterns in human existence. Snowflakes are part of a non-repeating pattern. I have this huge book of every grid known to man, and there's so many of them, and, and there's so many ways to order and organize in non-symmetrical and symmetrical patterns. I find that pattern finding happens when we give our brains room and we then limit that room. So I always have squares of paper around. I live with a 12 by 12 pad on my desk that I have custom made. I use square stickies all over the place. And as soon as I have to start solving for something, I read insatiably, but then I, like I did when I was a kid with index cards, just start writing things and it goes all over the floor. It goes all over the couch. It goes all over the walls. And I tell my students to do this, put things in front of you, create a charrette, pick them up from one spot, put them in another. My favorite kind of constraint is four, four, four walls surround you. Name each wall something and put everything you're learning, one piece of paper at a time or one sticky note at a time up. Move them around, find new ways to put them together. That's how you figure out patterns. It's good to have 
a lot of reading under your belt, understanding the history of the world from very diverse points of view. It's great to know about music and the order and patterns or disorder of that. Look, the more we have diversity of mind and experience, the more patterns we're going to be able to see. But repeating patterns, maybe it's kind of a nice shortcut. Mm -hmm. They're just, I think, gosh, my world must look like that scene out of a beautiful mind half the time. It's like (laughs) big walls and strings and just getting it out. When we experience what we're processing and learning with multiple senses, I think it's easier to figure out where new ideas are and where the right or most directing patterns are. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I use the beautiful mind analogy all the time, which people always say is a testament to my ego. So I totally, (laughs) I totally get where you're going. This has been awesome. I want to get to off the dome. So I have a, a couple of quick fire questions, a few quick fire questions to ask you. When I was doing a little research for this, I noticed that you guys are thinking about, I'm not going to say it exactly correctly because I don't have the site in front of me, but this toolkit of golden rules or for something, you know, you're nodding. So that means you get what I'm saying. What is one of your professional golden rules? Uh, You know, I borrow it straight from improv and it's yes and. I have an aversion to the negative. I am by nature incredibly optimistic. Otherwise, I wouldn't be trying to solve nuclear threat. And I think that when you say yes and build on someone's idea together, you get to build together a new idea. No and but just shut conversations down and yes and and help creativity flourish. Okay. As someone who is a tool builder, what is your most indispensable tool in your toolkit? The gift of articulation. It helps me establish immediate credibility in a room and it gets people to trust me so that I can bring out the best in them. Okay. And we've all heard the saying, it's better to be lucky than smart. So I'm not going to debate whether or not that's true, but it's something that people say. In your experience, in your career, what is it better to be if you're going to be successful? It's best to be self-motivated. You can't solve problems for anybody else. You have to be, you have to fall in love with the challenges that are sitting in front of you. They have to be yours. They have to be internal. And when they are, you dream them at night and you think about them when you're on your run and you you just get better and better at what you do. Perfect. Perfect. I want to leave us time for the drop. So the drop are these little intellectual morsels, these little pieces of information that we're going to share with our listeners. So I'll let you go first. What's your so, drop? My drop is Anything and Everything Ever Written by Oliver Sacks, who Dr. Oliver Sacks was a a neuroscientist and a humanitarian. And he followed the sound advice of Nathaniel Hawthorne and enjoyed, in Hawthorne's words, an expansive intercourse with the world. I like that. And yours? You got one for us? Of course, yeah. Mine is actually a piece of music that I've been obsessed with over the past couple of weeks. There's an R&B artist named Tink, T-I-N-K. This will be in the show notes, but in case someone can't hear me quite clearly, Tink. And it's very much in the tradition of a lot of these kind of newer 
R and B singers, um, SZA, and there's and a few others that people might say, oh, she's reminiscent of. Her newest record is called Hopeless Romantic, which is a very interesting name for a record that's actually quite raunchy. But um, but I don't know, the raunchiness is kind of fresh. It's it's weird to say that, but as I was listening to it, it's very much of this moment. I think of being very open and expressive and kind of owning what you want, but also indulging in some fantasy that's interesting. It's hard to describe. It's probably better if I'm like having this conversation like privately, but I think like there's elements of it that are actually really interesting that I was like, huh, I've asked a lot of my friends like what they think of the record, because I think some people could feel like, oh, this is kind of regressive. And then others that will be like, there's a forward way of looking at it, despite some of the regressiveness. It's interesting. I don't know. I'm all over the place with it. But musically, it's it's very cool. And it's the artist is Tink and the album is Hopeless Romantic. Oh, and that's my great to listen. Awesome. It's, it's raunchy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Okay. <laughs> Just say, I warned you. <laughs> This has been great. I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation. And thanks for being on the deep dive. Oh, it's a privilege. It's so much fun. And I can't wait to hear more and more from you and your guests. It's been a pleasure having Elizabeth Tellerman join me on the deep dive. We discussed her journey in strategy and education and how it led to creating the Nucleus Group. We explored her perspective as a tool builder and teacher and how it uniquely impacts how she uncovers insights and add value to clients. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website at thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and you enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.